the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Um, good evening. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Gemma, I'm a member here, uh, and I have been for quite a long time actually. It's been just over nine years since um, I started coming to Belmont as a student, which means that it's been just over nine years since I started uh, kind of, or had to start making that decision about what kind of church I wanted to be a part of, what kind of church I wanted to be associated with during my time in Exeter. Um, I also had to make a decision about whether I wanted to be part of a church at all, if I wanted to be part of the church at all, and it's a decision that most of us will have made in this room at some point in our lives. Um, I wonder, though, what you think of when you, when you hear that phrase, the church. Maybe you think of Belmont, I don't know, but um, I wonder if you think positive things, nice things, nice people, nice relationships. Maybe you're someone who thinks negative things. That's totally okay. That's allowed. Maybe you kind of think of a mixture of things because there are things about church that you like, but there are things about the church, like the institution of church, that you find difficult. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Um, but in preparing my sermon this evening, I, um, I asked my brother this question. Uh, when you think of church, what do you think about? And I asked him, it's like quite a big question, so I said, well, can you just give me three words? Give me three words. Uh, and I asked my brother this question because my brother isn't a Christian. Um, in fact, my brother is about as anti-religion as you might be able to get. Um, and one of the big kind of barriers in our relationship is that I have decided to associate myself with basically this in his head. This is how he described the church. Indoctrination, corruption, and paedophiles. Now, he knew you were going to see this. I don't think he's done it. He, I don't think he's done it for reaction. I think that's genuinely what he understands the church to be. Sam and I started going to church at the same time. We stopped going to church at the same time. I went back, but he never did. And part of the reason why he decided not to go back was because there were things that he'd, that he'd seen, that he'd heard, that he'd experienced about church, both at a local and, and you know, institutional level, that became this barrier to him. And, and the sad thing is, for me, as someone who knows and loves Jesus and understands what happens when people don't, um, it's become a barrier to, to Jesus for him, too. He doesn't want anything to do with Christ. Because that, that is how he understands Christ's people. And, and the truth is, is that like Sam's not the only one uh, out there who kind of has these, these thoughts. According to some research carried out by the Barca Group in America, only 21% of non-Christians have a positive view of church. 21%. Research done by the Pew uh, Research Centre in Europe doesn't show things being much better this side of the pond either. Um, and it's not just non-Christians that struggle, too. Uh, in, in America, in that survey that, that, that they did, 20% of practicing Christians said that they don't have a positive view of the church, with 22% of church-attending Christians in Europe saying the same thing. 
In an interview on dropping church attendance um, with The Guardian, uh, Scott McConnell of, of Lifeway Research said that one of the top answers he found in his research as to why people stop attending church um, is because church members seem to be too judgmental, too hypocritical. He added that, that, that the younger generation just don't feel like they're being accepted in a church environment or that some of their choices aren't being accepted. Now, I could do a whole sermon just about that statement. Uh, I'm not, don't panic. Um, but this is how we're seen by the world. Might not be how I'm seen personally, might not be how Belmont is seen by the people of Exeter. But the church, this is how the church is seen by those who aren't a part of it. This evening, we're going to be thinking about this idea of we are not our own as we kind of work our way through chapter six of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And as we do this, um, we're going to be thinking about kind of two big ideas that, that come out of this letter that, that I think Scott has touched upon a little bit in this research too. The first is that, that, that we are not our own. And so we need to let go of some of the, the rights that we think we are entitled to, that we think that we have. The second, though, which is kind of what we've touched on already this, this evening, is that, that we are not our own, okay? And sometimes what we do reflects on the church uh, and, and it reflects on Christ himself. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this evening. So I'm going to pray really quickly for us and then we're going to get on into, this, into the passage. So just let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, as we open your word this evening... Um, I just pray that you really kind of speak to us through it. Lord, as we think about the way that we conduct ourselves in this place and out of it, and the impact that that has on each other, on you, uh, on how the world sees us, help us to be encouraged where we need to be, to be challenged where we need to be, and help that challenge not just sit there, but us do something about it too. We thank you that through your spirit you speak to us, and we just pray that you do that this evening. Amen. So just to remind you then, we're in 1 Corinthians 6. And we're going to move around. So if you have got a Bible open, that would be really helpful um, too. If you were here last week, you'll have heard that Simon kind of really brilliantly unpacked 1 Corinthians 5 for us as we thought about kind of sexual conduct and the importance of kind of holding those we're in community with to account for the sake of the wider body. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 6 kind of continues on those themes um, as we see these two issues raised by Paul to the church that he's kind of hoping to steer in the right direction. The first um, sits around these kind of lawsuits among believers and the second around what my Bible entitled sexual immorality. Okay, And as we kind of look at those two things in a minute, I think, I think both of those issues kind of boil down to that sense of entitlement, that sense of, of rights. Um, and that's kind of what we're going to explore. But before we do all of that, I want to make just a quick statement, if that's okay. It sounds quite bold, it's not, but just a comment, because it's been on my heart since I started preparing for this. Um, over the course of the three weeks, so last week, next week, th- last week, this week, and next week, we're spending a lot of time, right, looking at kind of sexual conduct. We're spending a lot of time looking at sexual sin. And I think it's important to kind of explicitly say that that's because sexual conduct in the church in Corinth, was a massive issue, okay? As we look at it today, the very way that the church in Corinth understood sex 
um, was wrong. And, and although we're going to talk about kind of why Paul may understand sexual sin to be slightly different to, to other sin in a minute, I, I felt like it was really, really important for me to say that, there, that there's no kind of worse or less sin. Worse sin, yeah? There's nothing, like, no sin is worse or, or less than any other. Whenever we choose anything over God, whatever that might be, that is not good, okay? Now, this letter is written to a church who lived in a particular place, in a particular time, with a particular culture that was infiltrating their, their life. And that's what Paul is addressing and highlighting in this section of the letter, and so that is why we're looking at it. Yeah, it's not that, that, that this church thinks that sexual sin is worse than any other sin. That's not the case, right? It's just that this is one of the big issues that was facing the church at the time, and that's why we're looking at it this evening. All right. So I just wanted to say that because I felt like that was important. Okay, we'll move on. Um, Paul's first concern then, when he reflects um, on something that we kind of touched on last week, which is. How do you solve a problem like the church? That's kind of, if you can sing it in your head, you can sing it, that's fine. Um, How do you solve a problem like the church? More importantly, how do you solve a problem in the church? That's kind of the the issue that he's having, yeah? Um, In chapter five, Paul is really clear that the church itself has a responsibility, a duty to discipline and make hard calls when it comes to uh, those within the church. And here at the beginning of chapter six, we see him make the similar argument. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? This is chapter 6, verse 1. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent enough to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? Now, now it's really important to clarify here that Paul is talking about civil matters, yeah, Uh, not legal things. Okay, we as a church should not deal with legal matters ourselves. If things with, if people within the body have committed crimes, we take it to the relevant authorities and we support all parties involved and they actually go through that process. But that's not what this is about. This is all about how we deal um, with uh, kind of civil matters, okay. This is not about kind of issues of, of big justice, And Paul says this because when we talk about taking a brother or or a sister to court, it's not this that we should be imagining, yeah? This is not the picture we should be imagining. This is the picture we should be imagining, okay? This is what it was like, okay? Trials were conducted, these kind of civil matters, in the city centre for everyone to come and see. And for those people that loved a little bit of drama in their lives, it was great entertainment. It was was what you went... um, Uh, to go and watch uh, on your lunch break or just because, you know, you have nothing better to do. Now, I actually know people who are on Jeremy Kyle because they fish for people near where I lived. And and I can say that, that it's really hard to come back from that. It's really hard to come back from having your personal kind of troubles and struggles aired out on national television. And this is what was happening in the church, right? Instead of using the gifts that that God had given them to sort it out among themselves, they were airing their pettiness and their disagreements for the whole of the city to hear. 
And in doing so, they were associating the church and by extension Christ with this really selfish and embarrassing behaviour. Paul is really clear, right, that we have a role as followers of Jesus to judge one another. And that isn't about taking moral superiority or pride, that kind of judgment we're told not to do in Matthew 7. But rather, it's much more about kind of moral discernment, like he's already touched on in chapter 5. This is part of what it means to be in relationship with one another, part of what it means to be in relationship with Christ. And if we're failing to do this, we are letting our brothers and sisters down. And if we are outsourcing this to those in the outside community who know nothing about Jesus, then then what are we saying about what we think of the wisdom that comes from the Spirit? What are we saying about what we think about how that compares to the wisdom of the world? Paul then explains to the church in Corinth that the sorts of behaviours that that aren't welcome in the church. And this isn't about one-offs. We all have moments where we maybe mess up and and as long as we repent, we, we are offered grace, we are offered forgiveness. But this is more about habitual practice that, that flouts yeah, the, the commandments of the king of the kingdom that we are a part of. And he adds to this list from the list that he lists in chapter 5 as well. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In his commentary on this passage, Andrew Wilson explains Paul's terms like this. He says the sexually immoral are those who have any form of sexual intercourse outside of marriage, and he understands marriage to be between a man and a woman, yeah? Idolaters, these are um, people who worship gods other than the Lord. Adulterers, these are married people who have sex with someone who isn't their spouse. Thieves, these are people that take things that do not belong to them. The greedy, these are people whose hearts always want more, who use their powers to get more. Drunkards, these are people who abuse alcohol. Slanderers, these are those who lie about others. And swindlers, these are those who cheat others. Now, the eager-eared among you will notice that I missed one out. And that's because I just want to address this by itself, just a little bit separately. The one I've left out is men who have sex with other men. Now, now, most commentators would would agree, and I think Sam, when Sam read it, we heard it there, that, that this is talking about male prostitution. Uh, which was kind of common in the temple. It was a common part of of idol worship. This is more about the act rather than the sense of attraction. Uh, And it was commonplace and practice in Greco-Roman society to use sex as a way to kind of assert dominance over another. As Richard uh, kind of touched on in our introduction to Corinthians right at the start of the series, and uh, as Simon touched on last week, and as I've already said this evening, The attitude to sex and sexual conduct in Corinth, this mismatch of Roman and Greco culture, is so different to how we understand it now. Sex was used and understood in all sorts of ways. To procreate, yes, but as a physical act of love, in this culture, less so. Sex was a way to worship gods. It was a way to assert dominance, to assert power over another. 
For the Corinthians, as we see kind of moving into verses 12 and 13 as well, sex was just a way to meet a physical urge. In the same way that you might eat a bit of food if you're hungry, or, or go to the toilet if you need a wee, you have sex to deal with that. And although this verse can and is sometimes used to help construct what the Bible does teach about sex and marriage, I think there are other verses that maybe speak better into that. Okay? Here we see that Paul's primarily, like primary issue in this section is about people who are being selfish. People who are uh, self-centred, who are self-gratifying. People who have self-serving attitudes and behaviours that have infiltrated the church and that Paul is saying, no, that is not of God and that has to go. Paul goes then from this to speaking more into the, the sex lives of the Corinthians, okay? Paul challenges their I can, so I shall do attitudes and their understanding of what sex is. As we know from previous weeks, the world had this huge influence in the culture and the beliefs inside the Corinthian church. See, rather than being distinct and separate and holy, the church were blending in, in action and thought and deed. And, and that's what Paul's addressing um, in that uh, bit here. They have this rights-based culture in the church. kind of feeds in from the Roman side of the culture that they were immersed in. And it had led the church in Corinth to prioritise self above all else, yeah? I can, so I will, actually. And that's what Paul is challenging uh, in verses 12 and 13. He then kind of springboards to address the other dominant way of thinking among the church. And that was influenced by Greek philosophy and culture, which put kind of this greater influence on the mind and the soul than on the body itself. At this time in Corinth, Stoicism was really popular, this kind of separation of body and spirit. And there was this idea that, you know, you can do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't really matter because the mind, the spirit, that's what's important. And Paul challenges this way of thinking. He picks it apart and pulls it apart by pointing them to Jesus. He tells them that... that, that um, the purpose of the body is found in the Lord, in verse 13. That the resurrection of the body will come through the Lord, in verse 14. He talks to them about the interaction of the body with the Lord, in verses 15 to 17. He talks to them about the fact that the, that the Lord inhabits their body. Their body is a temple, a, a dwelling place for the Lord, in verse 19. And he reminds them that their body is redeemed by the Lord in verses 19 and 22 as well not 22 sorry he explains to them that the body actually has this huge value it has this huge importance and what is true of your spirit is also true of your body they cannot be separated the body is united in Christ it becomes the dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit and so what we do with it really 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 matters yeah Paul ends this statement um, ends with a statement which kind of sums the whole chapter up for me and it's what we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about this evening you are not your own you have been bought with a price therefore honor God
See, the issues raised in this chapter, from the lawsuits to the sexual immorality and everything that comes with them, come back to this place, this truth that that we are not our own, right? See, the need to have lawsuits within the church in the first place reflects this attitude of like, I'm entitled and you've got to give me what is mine. I deserve this. The reality is if if the Corinthians had been willing to to let go of some of the things that they felt entitled to, to prefer one another over self, to be willing to to sacrifice, to take a hit, to, to die to the right, to the entitlement, to the desires that they had, then these lawsuits wouldn't have been needed. Paul's teaching about sex would not have been needed. They would have backed down or they would have let go of the desires that they had and the infringement um, that they felt uh, when things didn't go their way. But they couldn't. They couldn't do it because of their obsession with what they were entitled to. He says the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why does Paul say that? Well, because they've missed the point of what a life with Jesus is supposed to look like, right? He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. See, the thing is, these were people who had decided to follow the one who, despite being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. They had decided to follow the one that, that made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. They decided to follow the one who humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And instead of following that example, instead of modelling that to the world around them, instead of being different, They seek to satisfy every desire, every urge, because they can and because they want to. They sleep with prostitutes because they want to have sex. They take their brothers and sisters to court because they want what is theirs. This is how they were choosing to spend their Jesus-bought freedom. Not chasing after God, not pursuing Jesus at all costs, not giving up everything in order to bless and encourage and show love to those around them but chasing after what they want what they think they deserve like you can get why Paul is frustrated you can get why he's like angry they were supposed to be these examples of Christ-like living and yet Despite accepting that call to pick up their cross and follow him, despite proclaiming that that they were willing to die to self and be a slave to God, they couldn't even take the hit over a petty disagreement within the family. They just hadn't got it. And it was damaging them. And it was damaging the church. And it was damaging Christ's reputation. And we have to be so, so careful not to do the same. There are lots and lots of things that the world tells us that we are entitled to. And the reality is, yeah, we might be. We might be. But as followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to let them go. Yeah? To give them up. To sacrifice them 
for the sake of something or someone else in the kingdom. And, and the, the honest truth is that's the reality of living a life with Jesus. And it is hard. Oh, it's really, really hard. But that's what we are saying we want to do when we say that we want to follow him. Um, I'm only 27. That's not a brag. That's just me telling the truth. Um, but even at my stage in life, there are things that I feel like I'm entitled to. Things I feel like I should have at this point in my life that I don't. And part of the reason that I don't have those things is because um, I've sacrificed the opportunity sometimes to have them. Because it wasn't what the Lord wanted for me in that time or in that moment or full stop. And like I could have had this thing and I probably would have enjoyed having this thing. And I, and I wanted to have it. And I still at times want to have it now. But, but Jesus said no. So I had to make a decision about what was more important to me. And I am not my own. So I walked away. Paul asked the Corinthians, would you rather not be wronged? No. Would you not rather be wronged? Would you not rather be cheated? But I'd like to add something to that. I'm not really supposed to add things to the Bible, are we? But I'd like to add something to that, if that's okay. I'd like to add, would you not rather miss out? Would you not rather go without for the sake of the gospel? And the truth is, if the answer is a hard no, no thanks. If the answer is a repetitive no, no, I'm never doing that, I'm never doing that. Then actually, like, I think, I mean this in the nice possible way. You need to have a little look at yourself. You need to have a little chat with God. Because the reality is that you have missed the entire point of what a life following Jesus is supposed to be about. And that's the truth. There is also this element that because we are no longer our own and we are joined together as this one body of Christ, what we do reflects uh, and impacts on the church and on Christ. Um, when I'm not here, I normally am in a school. I'm assistant chaplain and a head of year. And um, basically, because I don't teach, I end up on lots of school trips because I don't cost the school any cover. Um, and one of the things we do uh, when we kind of take kids out on school trips is we brief them before we, we leave the bus. And the briefing always consists of, you know, always go off in freeze, blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. But it, but it always ends with um, this thing that says, when you are out at the Eden Project or in town or wherever it might be, you are representing the school, yeah? What you do reflects on how people perceive the school. So please behave in an appropriate way, yeah? We tell the kids, you are not your own. You can't conduct yourself however you may want to while you're walking around here because you are part of something bigger and the way you behave reflects on something bigger. This is true within the church, yeah? When we become part of Christ, we are no longer our own. We belong to someone, something bigger. And what we do, what we say, how we conduct ourselves, it, it really, really matters. Because when people see us, they don't just see us anymore. 
They see the church. They see Jesus. And the reality is, we might be the only reflection of church, the only reflection of Jesus that they will ever see or they will ever know. Those really, like, powerful words from my brother at the beginning, like, they don't describe me. They don't describe you in as much as I know you guys. They don't. They don't describe this church. But they do describe potentially particular individuals who, who have made mistakes, who have forgotten that, that they are not their own. And yet, because we are joined, because we are all part of one body, what they have done is reflected back on me in the conversations I have with people when I tell them I'm a Christian or I go to church. They're reflected back on you when you have those conversations. They're reflected back on this church, this, this family here in Exeter, and they're reflected back on Christ as well. We are imperfect and we will make mistakes. But Paul's really stark warning to the church in Corinth is that what we choose to do with our lives, with our bodies, not only impacts everyone else in the body, but it kind of brings them and brings Christ, Jesus Christ, into that too. Our conduct matters. And how we deal with the conduct of our fellow brothers and sisters, that matters too. We're seeing that more and more in the world today. If you are a Christian here today, you represent and are part of something so much bigger than yourself now. And you need to recognise that. And you need to factor that in to your choices, to the, the things that you do, the way you live your life day in and day out. Now, Paul doesn't say all of this without justification. He reminds the Corinthians of what Jesus has done for them. Washing, sanctifying and justifying them so that they could start new again. They could go forwards, not backwards. They have been bought at a price, Paul tells them in verse 20. That is why they're no longer their own. That price was Jesus, yeah? The one who gave everything absolutely everything for us. That is who we sacrifice our rights for. That is who we sacrifice our desires, our freedoms, that lack of responsibility we had before we were Christians for. He is the one who sacrificed everything for us. And in return, he asks us to be willing to do the same. At the end of his commentary on this section of 1 Corinthians, Andrew Wilson writes this. The great lie at the heart of any form of sin is the idea that we are our own. But we are not. We were brought by God for the unthinkably great price of his own son. This means that my life and whatever aspect of it might be in question stop belonging to me the minute I decided to follow Jesus. The minute I said, yeah, I want you to be my Lord and Saviour, that's when it stopped belonging to me. It now belongs to him, the one who bought it with his life and makes it really, really clear what his will and expectations and intentions are for me. And that is true for you too. 
We just have to keep remembering it. Um, I want to leave you this evening with the words from the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which was written in the 1560s, so nice and current for us all. Um, It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty amazing. I'm hoping that you think that's pretty amazing too. Um, Thank you so much.